Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. I had started preaching through the book of Romans at the beginning of the year, and I made it halfway through chapter 1, and we had some other things that I felt needed to be addressed, so we kind of stopped it, and we're going to pick up where we left off, and uh, we're going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 this morning, and we're going to be talking about the wrath of God, and this is not a popular topic, this is not something you hear but it is something that Scripture talks about and it's something that needs to be addressed. And so uh, both this morning and next week, we will be addressing the topic of the wrath of God from Romans chapter 1. Uh, so if you don't like this sermon, maybe next, one will, next week will be better. <laughs> um, and if you don't like the wrath of God, you don't got to come at all. <laughs> uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. If you have that passage, you may stand for the reading of God's Word if you're able. Hear the word of the Lord. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray again. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. Would you come to us this morning and would you enlighten this text? Would you help us understand its meaning? And would you help us see the good news? And Lord, in understanding the good news, let us also understand that there's bad news as well. And the bad news just makes the good news better. Help us understand these deep truths. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist, and he became one of the most famous outspoken critics of communism. And he helped to raise global awareness of political repression in the USSR, in particular the Gulag system. He was born into a family that defied the Soviet anti-religious campaign in the 1920s and remained a devout member of the Russian Orthodox Church. But eventually, Solzhenitsyn lost his faith in Christianity and he became a firm believer in both atheism and Marxist-Leninism. Later in life, he would return to the faith as he became a philosophically-minded Eastern Orthodox Christian as a result of his experience in prison in the camps at the hands of the USSR. And then in 1983, he received the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. And on that occasion, he gave an address on how the Russian Revolution and the communist takeover happened. And this is what he said in his speech. He said, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. 
Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own towards the effort of clearing away the rubble left by the upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. The failings of human consciousness deprived of its divine dimension have been a determining factor in the major crimes of this century. Solzhenitsyn is absolutely correct in what he is saying, but there's one thing that I would say to bring more accuracy to his statement, and it's this. It's not so much that men have forgotten God as much as they've suppressed their knowledge of God. They have tried to forget God. They have tried to do away with God, but they're not successful. Anytime someone tries to do away with God, anytime someone tries to forget God, the best they can do is suppress their knowledge. They can't completely wipe him out of memory. They can't completely wipe him out of their psyche. They can't change the purpose for which they were made. They can't change the imago Dei that they were made in. They can't change the image of God that they bear. The best they can do is suppress that knowledge. So when we see the world issuing out its daily dose of suffering, oppression, and chaos, it's because of sin. It's because at the center of it all, someone somewhere has suppressed the knowledge of God that's been made freely available to them through creation. See, don't let anyone ever tell you that they're not sure if there's a God or that they don't believe in a God. The truth is that somewhere, deep down inside, they know, but they don't want to know. They know, but they don't want to know. Because as soon as they admit that they know, then they know that there's accountability to that knowledge, and they think they can get away with their ungodliness as long as they can claim ignorance, but they can't. All they're doing is suppressing their knowledge of God. They're pushing it below the surface of their psyche, and what we see in the passage is that they wind up paying a dear price for it. In our passage... What we're dealing with is wrath. Wrath is the, is the price that they pay. The wrath of God is, according to John Stott, his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uh, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. In the Bible, what we're dealing with as a, as a result is we're dealing with three kinds of wrath that we see, that we see displayed in Scripture. First of all, if you, if you look at the sermon notes in your bulletin, we are dealing first of all with redemptive wrath. This is wrath that takes place in the past. Well, at what point in the past, in the past did this wrath take place? It takes place at the cross. In the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, we see a prophecy of how this wrath will take place on the Messiah. Of how this wrath will take place on the suffering servant who we know as Jesus. Jesus. 
In Isaiah 53, 3-5, the prophet Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But here's verse 5, but he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on Him. And we are healed by His wounds. And so what does that mean? It means that someone, somewhere, has to pay the price for sin. Sin can't be ignored. Sin can't be swept under the rug. God is is too full of justice. God is too full of justice to allow sin to be ignored. And so wrath for that sin has to go somewhere. The payment has to go somewhere. And then Jesus is the one who stepped forward and said, I'll take it. And so the wrath of God was poured out upon Him. If you look later in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26... Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that verse fairly well. It's part of the the Romans road, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Pay attention to that word propitiation. So God set Him forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now I know that's a lot to take in. What does all that mean? Well, let's start with the idea that God is both just and justifier. What does that mean? It means that in in being just, God can't ignore sin. But in being justifier, God can also forgive sin. But God doesn't forgive sin just by overlooking it. God doesn't forgive sin by ignoring it. God doesn't forgive sin by just pretending like it never happened. So how does God forgive sin? God forgives sin by transferring the punishment for that sin onto onto His Son. Now you, wait, now you think, well, where is that in Scripture? It's in, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Apostle Paul says, God made the one who did not know sin. That's Jesus. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. Now think about that statement for just a second. Paul doesn't simply say that God put the weight of sin on him. God doesn't simply say that God put the price for sin on him. God doesn't or Paul doesn't simply say that God put the punishment for sin on him. Paul actually says God made him sin. God made him to be the embodiment of sin. What does that mean? It means when you look up at the cross and you see you see Jesus hanging there And you understand Jesus is sinless. He is guiltless. 
He's got no sin whatsoever. He did not know sin. Him who did not know sin becomes the flesh and blood embodiment of every crime that you committed against God. He becomes the flesh and blood embodiment of your belief. Your belief is what nailed Him to the cross. Your unbelief is what poured this, the wrath of God on Him. Your unbelief is why He's hanging there, bleeding, paying the price. Your blasphemy is why He's there. Your blasphemy is why He's there. Your idolatry is why He's there. Your adultery is why He's there. And, he's, and He hangs there, bleeding. For you. He hangs there bleeding and pouring out everything He has for you. When God allowed His wrath to be poured out on Christ, He gave you everything. He gave you everything. He gave you all the riches of heaven. And how, how wonderful is that? God gave you everything. And yet, we don't want to talk about wrath. Wrath is uncomfortable. And yet, when we look at the Scripture concerning redemptive wrath, what we see is that Christ took the wrath upon Himself that rightfully belonged to us. And so what does it all mean? It means at the very moment that they begin to beat Jesus, at the very moment that they begin to whip Him, at the very moment that they begin to ridicule Him, God began to make Jesus the object of His wrath for those of us who believe. In that moment, in history, in the past, the redemptive wrath of God was poured out on Christ. And so that's the redemptive wrath that took place in the past. And what our text this morning in Romans 1.18 and 19 primarily deals with is revealed wrath. It's wrath that's revealed presently. This is primarily the kind of wrath we're going to be talking about this morning and next week, mostly next week, because today is just an overview of what wrath is. Next week we're going to get in the specifics of what revealed wrath is. But the very first verse of our passage in verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The first thing to notice is that in verse 18, it's connected to the previous two verses in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And that's very important for the context of this book. See, whenever you read the first three chapters of Romans, you begin to see that Paul begins uh, repeating himself to build his argument. <clears throat> for example, in Romans 1, 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then also to the Greek. Well, you also see that phrase, to the Jew and also to the Greek, repeated in the next chapter in Romans 2, 9 and 10. Where he talks about, where instead of talking about salvation, instead of talking about righteousness, he's talking about affliction and distress. He says in Romans 2, 9 and 10, he says, There will be affliction and distress for every human, who, for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. 
And so what is Paul doing? He's repeating himself. You've got to, he's repeating himself because he's making sure you understand that the scope of salvation is not dependent upon whether or not you're a Jew or a Gentile. Because all that's been done away with in Christ. The scope of salvation is spread far and wide. That's why John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, whosoever should believe upon Him should have eternal life. And so Paul begins repeating himself. For example, in Romans 1.19, he, sure he makes sure to tell us, that, tells us that, the, that the Gentiles that he's talking about, the unbelievers that he's talking about, he tells us that they knew God. He tells us in Romans 1.21 again, they knew God. He tells us in Romans 1.32, they knew God. Then he tells us in Romans 1.24, that God gave them up, or God gave them over. Romans 1.26, God gave them over. Romans 1.28, God gave them over. Well, what's going on? Paul is repeating himself to make a point that there is a pattern to all of this. And so... If we look back at Romans 1, 16 and 17 and we read it in connection with verses 18 and 19, we'll see how, how all of that fits together. Look at what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Look at verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, how is the righteousness of God revealed? It's revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now pay attention to verse 18 again. For God's wrath is what? Revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so, in, in one breath... In one single breath, Paul says in verse 17 that the righteousness of God is revealed. But then he says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is also revealed. And so how is the righteousness of God revealed? It's revealed by faith. Faith, that is specifically that is created by the preaching of the gospel. That's the conduit for the righteousness of God. See, righteousness has to have a conduit because wrath does not. And here's what I mean by that. Notice that verse 18 tells us that wrath is revealed from heaven. What does that mean? It means wrath is unilaterally or universally revealed. Every single person outside of Christ is presently living under the wrath of God. And you can see that in John chapter 3 verse 36. So there's no, there's no conduit for wrath because it's just generally universally revealed against all unbelieving humanity. So, because wrath is universally revealed against all unrighteousness, faith has to have a conduit. Faith has to have a way in through that wrath. And the way, the, and the way that faith gets through is through the preaching of the gospel. I don't know if that makes any sense. I, don't, I'm, I think I'm being as, about as clear as mud here. <laughs> but the, but when, I see, when I read verse 18 and how it talks about how wrath is revealed against heaven and then I go back and read verse 17 that righteousness of God is revealed from faith all I can think of is that the, that the entire world is covered in this smog of sinfulness and unrighteousness and that, the, and that faith comes in like a beam of light and shines in through that smog of sinfulness 
And how is that faith? How does that faith shine through? How does that faith get through all of that? It gets through by the preaching of the gospel. It gets through the, by the it gets through by the Holy Spirit opening your heart and mind to hearing the clear word of God. And so righteousness must have a conduit because wrath does not. Wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. The world is unrighteous. The world is unrighteous, and God is in the business of setting this world right. The world is unrighteous and God is in the business of setting the world right. And that process began when he sent his son. And so righteousness is revealed from faith, whereas wrath is revealed from heaven. Secondly, we have to see the present reality of this wrath. It doesn't say that wrath was revealed. It doesn't say that wrath will be revealed. It says that wrath is, present tense, revealed. The wrath of God is presently revealed against ungodliness. Well, now, we, we might ask, how can that be? See, our problem is that we have a limited view of wrath. When we think of the wrath of God, we think of fire from heaven, natural disasters, etc. But that's not the whole picture of wrath that we get in Scripture, and especially not, especially not a picture that we can draw from this text. See, the picture of wrath that we see in this text is not active, but it's passive. It's not active... But it's passive. It's not God actively pouring out His wrath, but it is God passively allowing wrath to occur as a result of people's choices. We, the, the women talked a little bit about that at, towards the end of Sunday school this morning. Sometimes God will allow you to suffer the consequences of your own sinful actions. And when God does that, it's a form of passive wrath. Now we're going to get into this point in more detail as we look at this text in the coming week. But the worst thing that can happen to you is for God to allow you to walk headlong into your own destruction. Wrath is presently revealed in that people reject God, they refuse God, and they insist on their own way of living. And God says, you know what? If you want it your way, you can have it your way. And when that happens, you begin to get a glimpse of what life without God is like. John 3.36, I mentioned it earlier, but this is what John 3.36 says. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, he says that the mercy of God is when we say to God, Thy will be done. But the wrath of God is when he says to us, No, thy will be done. And so that's the revealed wrath that we presently see at work in the world. We wonder why the world's gone crazy. We wonder why uh, Black Lives Matter is going around destroying buildings and setting things on fire. We wonder why all these pride parades are happening where people are just flaunting their sin. There's drag queens reading the kids in, in public libraries and in school libraries. Why is all that happening? It's because the wrath of God is being presently seen on the world. The wrath of God is being presently seen in, an, in a society that has consistently rejected His rule, His reign, and His power. And so that's revealed wrath. Finally, we see reserved wrath. Or this is a wrath that will be revealed in the future. And there's two places in Scripture where this wrath is most evident. Number one is in Romans chapter 2 verse 5. 
the Apostle Paul says, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And so there's two things that we can take from this one verse in Romans 2.5. That's two things, those two things are this. Number one, it's possible to store up wrath through our refusal to repent. It's possible to store up wrath through our refusal to repent. And number two, there is a day when that stored up wrath will be poured out. And when describing that day of wrath, in the second passage of Scripture where this is evident, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-10, through 10, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, Paul says this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. And so he's describing that day of judgment. He's describing the day of the Lord's return. He says this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. And so what Paul is saying is that there's two groups of people. There is a group of people that embrace the gospel. They embrace the lordship of Christ. They believe everything that Jesus says and is. And then there's another group of people that reject him. They reject the word of God. They reject the blessings that Jesus came to give. And, um, And those people, if they never repent, they will find judgment and wrath poured out upon them on the, when the day that, on the day that Jesus comes back on the day of judgment <clears throat> and so what they receive on that day is they receive all of the stored up wrath that they've laid for themselves they've laid up wrath for themselves through their own disobedience and unrepentance and that wrath will be poured out upon them on the day of judgment the book of revelation describes John's vision of the sixth seal opening And he saw that that day of judgment coming when the wrath of God would be poured out. This is what it says in Revelation 6, 15-17. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, and the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? See, we often say that God is no respecter of persons when it comes to salvation, and that's true. But God is also no respecter of persons when it comes to judgment. If, if you look back at Revelation 6.15, pay attention to the categories of people that are listed the kings of the earth, the nobles. So so John is starting with the highest ranking officials. He says the kings of the earth, the nobles, the powerful, the rich, every slave and free person. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Doesn't matter if you're slave or free. Doesn't matter what category you fit into in society. That wrath will come upon you if you have not repented. 
And so from the highest man in authority to the lowest man on the totem pole, judgment is coming. The day of wrath is coming. And what will happen to you on that day is not a matter of where you stand in society, how much money you have or don't have, whether or not you are a moralist, but it's a question of who that lamb is to you. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. But in Revelation 6, these people are beholding the Lamb, but He hasn't come to take their sins away. He has come instead to pour out His wrath upon their sin. And so the question is, is He your Savior or is He your Judge? This is something people need to be considerate of. This is something people need to think about in our society. Warren Wearsby, I couldn't have summed it up any better than this. Warren Wearsby says, If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. I'll say that again. If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. And so what we have this morning is we have an overview of wrath because in our society we don't understand we don't understand the scriptures we don't understand the things of God we don't understand the the wrath of God the mercy of God the sovereignty of God This is not a passage that gets preached on This is not a topic that gets talked about and the church is suffering the church is suffering over it because we have because People who stand in these pulpits have refused to see the whole counsel of God's Word and proclaim it for what it is. I've tried to keep the message short this morning, not because, that, not because I don't want to preach on this for a long period of time, but because there's a lot of information here. And I, I don't want to overwhelm people. I just want to get the main point across, and it's this. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ in the past so that you do not have to suffer the wrath of God in the future. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ in the past, so that you do not have to suffer the wrath of God in the future. And the thing is, if, if, if our society, and, and, and well, it's not just our society, unfortunately. If, if the people who claim to be Christians do not stop persisting in rebellion, on these issues of sexual morality, then they will suffer the wrath of God. There are things that I could say on that topic, but I will refrain for right now, perhaps next week. But I want us to understand this morning that we need Jesus now more than ever. Our society needs Jesus. Our church needs Jesus. Our denomination needs Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. Lord, would you use these words this morning? Would you use these words this morning to open up people's hearts and minds? Would you at least, God, allow them to maybe think about things they hadn't thought before? Would you use this message this morning to draw people closer to yourself? We ask it all in your name. Amen. for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. 
Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.